Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 251, The Show Must Go On, recorded September 4th, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. This is the one. doesn't happen anywhere else on the internet, just right here. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week are your two... Maybe semi-permanent, not sure yet, co-hosts, uh, uh, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson, and Miles, the desert-dwelling Aussie, uh, Wakeham. Hey, guys. Hey, Mark and everyone in Element Opie land. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Uh, desert-dwelling Aussie sounds about right. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. I, I just, I got to come up with something. Uh, um, mad, mad Miles, maybe. You know, beyond yeah, Thunderdome. Uh, we'll, we'll come up with something. They're, they're organic. They happen. I mean, it took like 180 episodes before I got a nickname. Um, it just, it happens. So we're glad to have you back, Miles. Um, uh, he's sort of, uh, at this point, the Jay Leno to Johnny Carson. Uh, he's the permanent substitute, um, at least for the moment. So we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, basically, he's the guy who said, I'll do it. And we kind of said, all right. You know, we got nothing better. Um, <laughs> so, well, I have big, big shoes to fill with Chris gone, so. I don't know, he's really not that big a guy. It's, uh, and we actually <laughs> never saw him wear shoes, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but we're glad to have you once again. Um, and this week, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about one of one of Miles's passions and what is becoming my passion, and that is the, the smart home, the automated home. Uh, but first, uh, I want to just, you know, tell you about uh, something that happened today to me, I, I re recaptured a bit of, of my glory days. Um, thanks to the wonders that is Craigslist. Um, I drove about 10 miles down the road and, uh, uh, relieved some recent college graduate of his foosball table. Um, Oh, yes. so very cool. It, it needs a little repair. It needs a little tender, loving care. It's obviously had more than a few beers spilled on it. Uh, but it was functional enough that as soon as I brought it home, uh, my friend Dave, who helped move, me move it, um, and and my kids and my wife, we all got together and started uh, just throwing some some uh, some fooses down. <laughs> I don't even know what you say, but it was so much fun. Uh, Seth and I, to collectively, have spent thirty seven years playing foosball, um, and it was uh, every D I ever made in college was because of a foosball table, um, and so when when we we're playing. I was, you know, I don't have anywhere near the skill I once did, but I'm still better than anyone else in my family um, because, you know, seven year old. Um, and so as I was playing and I was, I was whipping the ball around um, and even my friend Dave, who's, uh, you know, uh, a few years older than I am and has had some experience with it. It's like, hey, you're, you're still pretty good. I said, this, this is a, my college degree right here. This, this is all those years wasted. This is why I, it took me six years to get a four year degree. This game right here. So um, I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing that I have it down in my basement. It may be, you know, like giving an addict uh, of an opium den in his basement. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but so far, I'm just really loving reliving my glory days of foosball. Oh, man. I skipped many a class because of the games that we played. And I remember one time you quit a game and we were tied 18-18. <laughs> Who cares? It's like I had to go take a final. Teacher- <laughs> 
Now, who cares if the teacher walked by us on the way? We were, it was the best game ever. And, uh, man, foosball. I loved me some yeah. foosball. Seth and I played some epic, epic games. And you know, it's win by two, right? Play to 10, win by right. two. But, yeah, sometimes we would go 22, 23, 24 uh, because we were that evenly matched. And then when the two of us played doubles against somebody, I don't think we ever lost a game playing doubles. I don't think so. But, you know, you couldn't have two different styles playing. Right. But uh, two more different styles playing than ours. But, oh, man, foosball was so much fun. I was all about uh, quick finesse and ball handling and passing back and forth. And I was best at the on the offensive side, you know, the the five and the and the four uh, front players. And I would pass the ball back and forth and, and uh, around the defense and then sneak it in and and angle a bank in. Seth would just whack it so hard that if the guy wasn't locking locked on the grip, he would actually move the piece out of the way. He was he was all about the power and speed and the ball would fly around at, at 100 miles an hour and, and none of us would see it. And at some point it would be like. I guess it's not on the table anymore. Um, so that's the way he played. Ah, loved me some food. So the next I time have, you come I have visit to ask me. You, I have to ask you a question. Like, what does your wife think about it? She jumped right in and played with me. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, it was great. Uh, she may feel differently in six months, um, but we'll see. I, I don't know that I am as addicted now. I, I just don't. I can't know. But, I mean, at one point, I literally had a stress fracture in my wrist from repetitive motions of, of playing foosball. I, I, I cracked a bone in my wrist playing foosball. Um, it's when you know you're doing something right, <laughs> right there. And uh, we, uh, we had the opportunity to play champions from, from other places. Uh, we, we, there was a German team. They weren't, it wasn't like a comp- competition thing, but they were two guys from Germany who happened to be uh, competitive players and Seth and I played them and beat them and got cursed out. I learned lots of great German curse words that day. Um, so anyway, foosball, yay! Yep. Oh man. So next time you come visit me, Seth, we we will spend many hours uh, r- pretending we were still as good as we used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I I you know I might just make them fly me to Atlanta instead of Dallas. <laughs> Uh, so if you're watching uh, the screen, you can see that Seth is not in his uh, uh, usual location. He is, uh, from the looks of the, the wallpaper, he's at a La Quinta Inn. Actually, I am in a uh, Fairfield Inn, so part of the Marriott properties. All right. And I had the chance to go home this weekend. They asked me if I wanted to stay. I thought, stay on the beach or go home to Texas in late August. Hmm. I'll stay on the beach. And then, then they pulled a fast one and changed me hotels. But so yeah, I'm in Delaware for two more weeks. I will be here next weekend and then I fly home on the 16th. World traveler. Yep. And miles, anything exciting going on in your life? No, it's uh, well, um, yeah, we're about to break 100 degrees in Phoenix. Can you believe that? It's well, that never f- happens. <laughs> no, well, for five months it hasn't. Uh, at least since uh, late May. You I mean break it as in not get up that high? Uh, yeah. Go below. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been 100 degrees or better for the last five months now. But don't you get uh, like really cold at night? Don't you get a break there? No, no, we don't. I mean, I thought we, I thought deserts were supposed to do that. I thought, you know, the winter is supposed to freeze or the nighttime is supposed to freeze. No, it doesn't. It, it maybe drops 10 degrees, maybe. Um, I was in my garage this morning. It was 83 or 85, and that was at 6 a.m. Yeah. 
Um, so that's about as, about as low as it gets. It's 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 grueling, but you know, for us, our peak season is the winter. So every everybody who lives in the north of the US or Canada, they all converge upon Arizona in January, and this place becomes a big party, um, <laughs> which is great, you know. But for that five months, man, it's it's like living in the Sahara. It's really hard. But we're getting through it. So everyone's really happy right now. We're breaking that that heat wave. Woohoo! Yeah, well, as I've mentioned many times before, Atlanta doesn't get as hot as uh, as it did in Texas. But the the incipient humidity that it never goes away. Uh, today was one of those days where it was only seventy eight, seventy nine degrees. It never got. I mean, think. Uh, let's see. According to my watch right now, it's eighty three. So um, I guess that would be about the high temperature eighty three, eighty five, somewhere around there. Uh, which is balmy anywhere else, you know, but here because of the never ending humidity, uh, it just feels like you're going, it feels like you need an aqualung, like you're dying of, of drowning outside. And, uh, maybe I'll adjust to that at some point, but after four years, I still am not adjusted to the humidity here. And, you know, I'm from North Texas. We know a little something about humidity, but it's just not the same. Yeah. And, That's what I hear. Yeah, and Ohio's out there. At least it's the dry heat. They say that, you know, an oven is dry heat too, but you don't want to hang out there. <laughs> well, four or five months of the dry heat's <laughs> yeah. a little, yeah. One yeah. day I can handle, but man, this is hard. We're all shut-ins for half the right. year, you know? All right, well, we're glad to have you here. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but by, but I was requested specifically uh, by a couple of people uh, to comment on the whole Colin Kaepernick thing. So uh, you guys are aware of what's going on there? So yeah. Colin Kaepernick, yeah. Um, a in in any way that matters, uh, a spoiled rich kid um, who happens to be black um, decided that he was going to uh, not stand for the national anthem because he can't support a country in which black people are mistreated. That's a rough, a really rough paraphrase of his stance. And somebody asked me what I thought about it. And and um, my thought was, you know, a this is nothing new. The uh, you know the three guys at the Olympics in the in the, uh, the that famous pose with their hands up, bowing uh, and refusing to uh, acknowledge the national anthem in the traditional fashion. Um, he's doing that same thing with less effectiveness and less class. Uh, so it's not it's not a new thing. Uh, but the question that that I had that a friend of mine raised, and and I think it's really the best way to address this whole thing is what's the end point at what point do you stand Colin Kaepernick and others who support him um you I have no problem with you choosing to make a statement in that way I don't feel that you're desecrating our country I'm not one of those people who's gonna go out and burn the uniform but if you're gonna make a stand like that you have to have a point at which you say okay now it's fixed if you if you're gonna make a stand where I can't support a country where this stuff happens, what's the end point? When, when is it fixed? And I've never heard, and I'm not just picking on Kaepernick in this case, but, but often when you hear these um, uh, you know, protests, things like that, uh, you know, it's kind of like the war on terrorism. It's the same thing. And, and you know, now I'm picking on conservatives. Is you, can't, you can't have a war on terror because how do you win a war on terror? Terror has to go away. So that means nobody in the world is ever afraid of anything. Then the war is over. So how do you how do you um, protest racism? I mean, how do you end a protest on racism? You, you're now somehow expecting the heart of seven billion people to change in a very specific way before you're willing to stand for the national anthem. So that's my thoughts on it. 
you guys have any any comments well i would say that you know this seems to just be something new he started and my question is is this something he's just doing for publicity or he's he using all of his resources aka putting money where his position is so is this is he just a a stupid celebrity with a cause or is this something really important to him if it's something really important to him hey go for it but if it's just a celebrity with a cause i honestly don't care yeah it does come across a little bit rage quitty doesn't it if that's the right term um i don't know i'm look i'm the i'm an immigrant right i've i'm a dual citizen i'm a u.s citizen i took it voluntarily so when somebody stands against a national anthem or anything that's, um, you know, patriotic to a country which I chose to become a citizen to, you know, you take offence. And I'm sure it's not it's not just a matter of immigrants taking offence. I mean, natural-born citizens here would have the same situation. But is that really the platform that's going to make any form of a difference? I mean, it's a protest, but does that really change? I'm not sure if it does. Yeah, so I'm I'm not opposed to him doing it. Honestly, I'm not. Um, I don't. I feel that's perfectly within his legal rights and per- perfectly within his moral rights. There's there's no law that says you have to stand and salute uh, the flag when when the uh, the Star Spangled Banner is played. And and you know there have been times in my life when I went on with my you know when I'm sitting at home um, watching football and the the national anthem is played, I don't stand up and put my hand over my heart. I I, I don't. I sit on my couch with my frosty beverage and I watch it. Uh, so one could say I am every bit as unpatriotic as Colin Kaepernick in that case. So I'm not even going to, uh, you know, uh, address that. What uh, what he's doing is just a thing he's chosen to do, and he's chosen to draw attention to something that he feels important about. These are all good things. Drawing attention to things that you feel are important are good things. You know. Then the question is, does what makes him special? Why does he have any power? to draw attention to things. Well, celebrities always do. And that's when you get, you know, nutbag actresses saying uh, vaccinations cause autism and people listen just because they happen to be in movies they like. Um, so and this, this is no difference. This is using celebrity to draw attention to a cause. And okay, I, I'm, I, don't, I, I think it's kind of low class in general, but uh, he's no more, no more or less low class than other people that do it. But I think that the, the, my issue is the whole protest culture. You, you need to understand that protests have a reason. Um, when Martin Luther King protested, you know what he protested? He, the, he protested being treated like a man. He wore a sign that said, I am a man. Treat me like a man. That's, that's a clear and objective goal. And when, when he becomes, becomes being treated like a man, he'll stop. When, when black people are allowed to ride anywhere on the bus that a white person can ride, the bus boycott, boycott can stop. That's a protest that means something. Uh, a protest against mean people, it doesn't mean anything. No, I mean, activism works in some ways. It is a part of culture, and it is sometimes needed to make dramatic changes to things that are entrenched. So I get that. Uh, I'm just wondering whether this actually had any effect. I mean, yeah, it brought attention to something that we see every night on CNN or any right. news station. It's not. It's not helping. It's just adding more. It's adding more um, problems. It's it defining a problem we already know is a problem. I, I kind of am one of those guys that likes to hear somebody come up with a solution. Right. 
All right, and, and that's all. That's all I was gonna. And I wouldn't have even brought it up except I was I was specifically requested to. Somebody said, "Hey, I want to know what you think about it," and um, and so there it is. So five minutes, you can move on with your life now. Um, I've had, I don't know if I've told this story, and it's probably not the right place to tell this story. Um, but one of my proudest parent moments ever. Uh, happened a few years ago, and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna tell it if if I've already told it, Seth, you can stop me. Um, but in when we moved to Atlanta, um, our next door neighbor was uh, was a black family, um, and their kids were about the same age as our two youngest, uh, and w- they almost immediately became fast friends, and uh, and so you know at any point I would I would wa- I mean th- walk in the door, and I had my three kids plus the two neighbor kids. They were just part of the family. Um, and they, to the point where they would, you know, they would walk in the, just walk in the door. They didn't knock, they didn't ring the doorbell. It was their house. And my kids would do the same, um, at the Freemans. That's the name of the family next door. Uh, and they would just walk, we were family and, and I, I loved that family and they loved us. They moved on recently bought, uh, bought their home. They were renting as well. Uh, but we're still, you know, we still Facebook friends, uh, as that happens, but we were watching the movie, um, uh, remember the Titans one day and you know that movie is is all about uh race relations and my uh my oldest at the time who was 11 maybe um ask i don't i don't understand why are these people mad why are these people mad that black people are going to their school and so we, we it was a great teachable parent moment so we stopped it and and uh and i said well you know they were mad because people different people were going to their school and that that was the only reason they had was just that there was something different and it doesn't make sense to me and it doesn't make sense to you. And I'm really glad it doesn't make sense to you that that means something that it doesn't make any sense to you. Um, and then my youngest who was at the time was, um, uh, five, maybe six, um, said, uh, of the, the, the girls across the street, and I'm, I'm not using their names cause you know, they didn't give me permission to, uh, said, uh, are they white or black? And I said, well, they're, they're black and we're white. And she said, well, when they grow up, are they still going to be that color? Yeah, that, that's kind of how that works is, you know, you're, you're born that color. And unless you're Michael Jackson, you stay that color your whole life. Um, so, yeah, they're black and we're white. Um, and so when they marry, will they marry somebody who's black? I, I, well, I mean, the numbers say probably. Um, there's, they're, they're not required to. They don't have to, but, but most likely they will. And will their chil- children be black? Yeah, again, most likely that's kind of how that works. If if they're black and they marry somebody who's black, they're going to be black. So they're not ever going to be white. No. And we're not ever going to be black. No. Okay. So one of my proudest moments was that my daughter literally did not know the difference between white and black. They were just family. They were friends. Um, and so after that conversation, you know, it was kind of funny trying to explain to a five-year-old that, you know, you're born a, a color and you more or less stay that color. Um, and the fact that I had to have that conversation with her recalled to my mind dr martin luther king when he said i have a dream uh someday when black children and white children will will play together um and that my children are his dream in the most literal sense my children are his dream my my they didn't know the youngest one did not have a concept of white or black because you have to learn that that's not born in somebody has to teach you that and i'm so excited that nobody had ever taught her that um and so that's, you know, Colin Kaepernick, when you're complaining about the fact that the world isn't a perfect place, my daughter didn't know that you're black. And that's Dr. King's dream. 
So while you're complaining about the fact the world isn't perfect, let's celebrate the fact that the world has come a pretty long uh, way in a, in a pretty short amount of time. Sorry, I kind of I kind of went preachy there. Didn't mean to. That's okay. I didn't hear like probably half of it because you kept freezing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but I caught the gist, and you had shared the story before, but it fit so well in this conversation. I just let you go with it again because it's a cool story. So I did it on, on this podcast. I told that story. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, good story, though. Yeah. And 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 that's not. I, I don't say that to say look at me. I'm a good parent. I said say that to say look at society. Right, I wasn't actively trying to raise colorblind children. You know, that's not a that's not a goal I've set out to do. But society has come so far that sh- th- there was literally no concept of white or black. And until somebody introduces that, <laughs> it, it, she probably could have gone you know m- many more years without even recognizing that. Anyway, I, I I'm not I didn't intend to go there, but in this time when we when we like to look for things to complain about, I think we should look equally hard for things to celebrate. I like that statement. Okay. Yeah. Let's look to the positive. All right. I'm going to move on there and let you have your say. And another Mark, not me, Mark, uh, who goes by the name of ghost rock, apparently in our chat room, uh, says, Hey, Mark and crew got to say, I've been a fan of this podcast since back in the day when you guys talked about Linux. Well, that is a long time ago. I don't always agree with some of the things you say, but I've never been bored while listening to the podcast. So good on you. With that being said, I've occasionally talked back to my MP3 player while listening to you. I have never experienced being so upset while listening. Chris and Seth, it's obvious that you guys know a lot about D&D, but your explanation of it was painful to listen to. You were explaining to Mark about D&D as if he were already a gamer. If Mark doesn't know about role-playing already, you can't use role-playing terms to explain it. Mark, I feel like I owe it to you to give you a better explanation of role-playing than what you got in episode 250. Contact me, uh, and I'd be more than happy to sit down with you and explain all of this in plain English. I'd even come on the podcast as a guest if you want. Having said all that, I'm going to miss hearing Chris on the podcast, and I hope I can find some time uh, to I hope you can find some time to come back as an occasional guest appearance. Your fan, Fran, Mark. So I, I don't have any comment on that, again, since I didn't have any uh, frame of reference i didn't know if they did a good job or bad job so uh, apparently mark thinks that not so much well in my defense i found out like two minutes before the podcast started that that's what it was going to be about Fair so enough. and i haven't played it in over half my life so those were old memories i were call- was calling upon miles did you listen to last week's show i did indeed did you have um, any comments on it at all well, I, I played D&D when I was about 14, probably for four or five years on and off. And um, so I, I kind of followed along because I knew the terms. I knew I knew what a saving throw was. I knew what a D20 was. I mean, it was easy for somebody like me to follow it along. But, yeah, I, I can understand if somebody's never been exposed to it at all that they might, they might not get it. And, you know, hey, a post-internet era... There's a lot of people out there who have never been exposed to D&D. So I, I, I get what um, what Mark's saying. I understand where he's coming from. All right. And, and again, I, I can't really offer any commentary. Um, I didn't feel confused, but maybe I just don't know enough to not be confused. Um, and Kirk writes a follow-up. He had mentioned, I read a, an email from his, I think, last week about uh, 
uh, Axis and Allies. He says, hello again. First, Chris, thank you for the years of, you've contributed to the show and to our knowledge of the command line. Element OP is my favorite podcast network, and you've been a big part of it. Best of luck and success down the road. We'll miss you. To clarify the Mercator comment about Axis and Allies, the maps my friend and I used to play Axis and Allies was so malformed, it made the Mercator projection map seem normal. The one where Greenland is bigger than South America and even Africa in some versions. It made it easier to play, but it was sure goofy. And he's got a couple of pictures of the different maps. Thanks for continuing to read my emails despite some paranoid overtones. You guys are like a cradle or the 80s death metal. You rock. So thanks, Kirk. Um, and yeah, that's a. Anytime you take something three dimensional and spread it out two dimensional, things get weird. That's why they say the camera adds ten pounds. That's why that happens. You're taking a three dimensional human and putting him in a three in a two dimensional space. Uh, but yeah, I had never noticed until I looked at these pictures uh, how really jacked up the Axis and Allies map is. Yeah, well, there was a whole episode of West Wing, um, and I don't remember what season it was in, but the one where they let the regular people, you know, talk to all the staff, and that was this this particular topic about how two dimensional maps make the northern hemisphere look bigger and the southern hemisphere look smaller, and so we had to remove the equatorial bias from our maps of the world. So. Uh, them and Miss Teen South Carolina would get along really well <laughs> together. And that's why if you've ever looked at, uh, if, if you ever watch NASA television, yes, I watch NASA television. What's your point? Um, the arc that the that you see the the space shuttle do in orbit is is a parabola, but it's not a parabola. That doesn't make any sense. Um, they're going around the orbit in a circular, around the Earth in a circular orbit. How is it a parabola? Well, again, you take something two-dimensional and make it three-dimensional, you get a parabola. Um, the physics people, it's pretty cool. <laughs> all right, and that's yep. that's all we have for listener feedback. That's all we have for my blathering for the moment, anyway. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the Open Sprinkler Project and Miles's Miles's. That's hard. Miles's yeah, no. experience with it. <laughs> I've been living with that problem for a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, okay. So I got this. Uh, I got this house in Phoenix, and Phoenix very dry. And we decided we were going to do the, you know, the back of the house and re uh, landscape the whole place. And it got all done. And what was left was this little pocket of land that I wanted to experiment on a little sort of I don't know, like a mini market garden. I just wanted to grow plants. So I went out there and I had the con- contractors, you know, put in the the beds and then bring in all the um, the water and uh, put solenoids at each bed so it could be individually controlled. And so I'm left with this situation where I've got the whole thing all built and I want to be able to control water. Well, water is very, very expensive in the desert. You know, we don't have that much of it. So you want to use it extremely efficiently. And I was looking at, you know, you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, and you see all of the various different sprinkler controllers that work with these solenoids. And they just were not geeky enough for me. I mean, <laughs> right? There's not I mean, enough I, knobs and buttons or anything. Yeah, no LEDs flashing or anything like that. Come on, they've got to put a blue LED light on these things if they're going to get a geek to buy it. Um, so anyway, I, I, what do you, you know, what do you do when you can't find something at Home Depot? You go on the internet, right? So typing in and i found this guy who had this open source project 
And it, what he'd done was he took a Raspberry Pi and he wrote some software for it. And he built this, I don't know, kind of relay attachment thing to it. And you would put all of the lines for the solenoids into this relay attacher. And then you'd control this thing remotely and it would turn on and off the various valves uh, as you need it. So it's pretty simple. But he had taken his geekiness of, you know, build it for himself and turned it into this epic, incredible project and unbelievable work. I mean, he's a fantastic developer. He has, uh, it's got like a web application for it. It's got a phone application for it. It's absolutely beautifully done. And he turned it into a product which you can buy for about a hundred bucks. And I thought, well, okay, well, a Raspberry Pi is going to cost me like 35 bucks or something. And maybe by the time you put a power supply and put a case and then, you know, I don't want to be dealing with all of the put it together stuff as much as I do that stuff. I just didn't have the time. I just need to get water these plants. So I bought it. And I had it mounted up on a wall and powered and set up for all the solenoids. I'm going to tell you, this thing rocks. It's amazing. Um, it's it's smart enough to be able to control. I think you, the base level comes with like eight solenoid zones for the eight different valves. And then you can add expansion units to it to have more and more. Um, it's got a web interface where you can program what you want, when you want it. You have schedules. You do the whole thing. And then here's the cool thing. It reaches out to, I don't know, I think it's Weather Underground, and it pulls the weather forecast in, and it tells the sprinklers, don't go on if it's going to rain. So it works out the amount of precipitation that your zip code is going to get, and it adjusts all the sprinklers so that it doesn't sprinkle when the rain's going to do the job for you anyway. And uh, I've had this thing installed now for about seven months. Rock solid never misses a beat and we're eating tomatoes in the middle of summer in phoenix and i'm digging it this is great so if anything it's just my personal you know big thumbs up to the guys over at open sprinkler um and i'm sure you'll publish the website uh, for it but so i'm looking at the device here now and it's it is a piece of hardware uh but it mentions uh raspberry pi so can you reproduce this hardware with a raspberry pi if you want is it i mean open is built right into the name so are the plans available somewhere where you can do this yep uh yeah he did it both ways you can you can get the pi and then get the software off github and install it on the pi and and do the whole thing i think he sells it that you can do that probably with your own stuff i think he also sells a base level kit which is the pi with the relay attachment but it's not in a case and it's you know it's still a diy thing or you can buy the whole thing where he's put it all together. That, that's what I ended up doing because it's got a little LCD display and the buttons to control it and everything. And uh, It's absolutely brilliant. So being there in the desert, do you use sprinklers or do you use soakers like drip hoses most of the time? Uh, for these, I'm using uh, drips and small, uh, you know, I, I try not to do surface level watering because you lose 75% of that in, in the desert with evaporation. Uh, so most of the is drips that run around at the at the ground level, but if I need to, I can do a small little spray area. Again, it's just how you want to control right. the solenoid. So, so does the system the then measure flow, or is it purely time based? Purely time based. Okay. So you know, based on how you've got it set up, that five minutes of watering gets a gallon of water. 
that's ridiculous, but some some amount like that, um, and you uh, base it on that, and so you just tell the system at three in the morning, I wanted to dump five minutes of water on. Yep, exactly, and and it has a controller that controls. I'm sure that you know I'm not an irrigation expert at all, but um, it has a master controller, and then it has the individual solenoids. So the idea being that you don't put any water in the pipes that creates pressure that could burst a pipe. So the master goes on in conjunction with the individual solenoids so that when there's no water flow, the master goes off and there's no water in the pipe generating pressure. So is this all separate? Like you've got a separate specifically sprinkler line attached somewhere or is this an attachment on a water hose somewhere? You could do it either way. I, I chose to have a separate line so it wasn't going to interfere with the, you know, sprinkling on the lawns and so on. But uh, you, you could make it. You could put it anywhere you want. I've never done anything like this. You know, uh, like I said, in, in in Texas where I'm from, we just let the grass burn and, you know, you don't have to mow. That's the bonus. Um, and here it rains every 19 minutes. So that's not really an issue. So uh, I don't know anything about it, but it is interesting in the context of the overall smart home, which yeah, we were talking before we hit record and, and Seth kind of chastised us. This would be good stuff to actually do a show about, uh, but you kind of have a whole smart home thing working. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I, I've been trying this out for a couple of years, trying to find a solution. I, I started buying um, uh, little uh, light switches. I wanted to do control the lighting on the outside of the house, so I bought Insteon switches which i believe is a brand or a protocol standard um and that came after trying a bunch of other different things that work that didn't work so well and the idea of these insteon switches is that they are controllable via both power they use the power lines as kind of like an antenna uh, to receive an on off or a control signal uh but they also work via a radio frequency a radio wave thing i believe the z-wave protocol works a similar way but anyway, I was buying all these Insteon devices, and I found they're all coming from the same company, from this website called smarthome.com. And I ended up buying a controller for these guys, and, and it was working kind of okay until the controller started sending all of these really weird signals out to the internet to tell somebody about my lights. And I just got really freaked out by the whole thing. So I, I ended up... Um, kind of burying myself into the middle of Google to try to find other ways to control these devices and not be so brand specific. And, and I found a guy who recommended a controller called an ISY. And I think it's a, I can't, it's an ISY in three numbers, like 488 or something like that. And it's a uh, programmable uh, controller. It's a little, little black box and it has a Java uh, application which can control it. It also has a web application as well. And you can program this thing like you would program any uh, industrial control system. So it has a language, uh, kind of an if-then-else type structural language thing. And there's literally nothing I have not been able to do with this device. And it works with Insteon, Z-Wave, and all other protocol devices and uh, I've been having that thing. That thing's run at least 12 months now, nonstop. Never had to reboot it. Never had a problem. My lights go on. It, it does anything from motion censoring to, um, uh, you know, dimming control for lights to controlling sprinkler systems. It'll do uh, if your garage door goes up, it'll send you an email. Whatever you want it to do, you can make it do it. There's no limit to this stuff now. 
So I was uh, talking with uh, my friend today who helped me move the foosball table, and, and we have one of those, uh, it was very popular, at least in this part of the country, uh, for a few years. We have a, a study, den, whatever you want to call it. There's no overhead lighting of any kind. There's two, there's two outlets on a wall and a switch, so you plug in a floor lamp, and when you turn the switch on, the lamps come on. Very popular, uh, at least in the South, for a while. I've, I've been in uh, four houses now that had that kind of setup but with no overhead lighting. And so the 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 problem here is um because it's a a two-story house, the second story, you know, there's no crawl space. There's no way to run things. So I was looking at installing a light there in the middle of the room, the classic, uh, you know, incandescent the way uh every other light I've ever done was and I was like, well, I'm going to have to um first, you know, find a joist and then I'm going to have to see which way the joists run, you know, north and south or east and west. And then I'm going to have to fish some wire to it through a hole in the wall somewhere. Uh, otherwise, I have to rip plaster out. So there's, I'm going to have to, but if there's any insulation in there, that gets a lot harder. And so in the process of this conversation, uh, he was like, you know, that's very 1950s thinking. Why not use some DC-powered LED lights in all four corners pointing to the center of the room instead of one light in the center of the room and, and have it on a radio-controlled switch? You could do that for less money and less effort than all the things you talked about and be a lot more efficient. And then it, it, it sort of dawned on me that all the home improvement I've done, you know, from the time I was 20 on, um, has all been in this, you know, American uh, mid-century modern ethic that I was taught, you know, and I know how to wire, uh, you know, a three-way light switch and, and run Romax and all of that. But that's the old style. That's the way you did farm farmhouses. And that's the only thing I know. And, and it occurred to me that there's probably a million better ways to do that. You can use the current I- I- uh, infrastructure if it's available, but where it's not, you don't have to run mid-century architecture and infrastructure just to you know to to do modern stuff. So I've I've really started to rethink the way that I can make this house you know a 21st century house, even though it was built in 1983 or whatever. Uh, so I'm interested in that that whole concept of of adding um you know smart fixtures and all that sort of stuff but being a bit of a security weenie i don't want you know people in china to know when my lights are on uh not that there's really anything to fear from that uh, I, I don't know but at the same time just because on principle just because you shouldn't know that um so it's it's probably one of those things that we'll be talking about as i go down that road and, and as you've been down that road before me of of making the the 21st century house, making it the HAL 9000, but without the psychotic murdering tendencies um, in the modern age, because we have all the technology available to do that. We can have the smart home that, you know, adjusts to you and speaks to you and listens to you. That's all here. Uh, we've been looking for this modern supercomputer that runs the house, uh, and that's kind of the way, again, going back to that uh, mid-century mindset, that's the way Isaac Asimov told us it had to be. There had to be a, a central intelligence that ran the system, but we're what we're finding is really you just need a bunch of dumb boxes uh, to interact in such a way that it seems smart. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Anything, Seth? Well, oh, go ahead, Seth. Man, I'm just, I'm sitting here listening because I know the old way. You know, my dad has taught me how to do everything from the foundation to the roof and everything in between. So I'm sitting here listening to you going, man, 
is this just one more way where my knowledge has been passed up by the world? Uh, so I, I don't, it's, uh, yeah, just because you know, it doesn't mean it's the best way to do it though. And that's the line of thinking I fell into, you know, when the only tool you have is hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I was, I was, everything looked like a nail to me. But by the same token, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan next week. So I know how to do it and it works and I can do it. So interesting thoughts. I mean, I haven't ever considered this before. So, you know, my house needs a lot of tender loving care that it hasn't gotten except for very rarely since it was built. So I'm sitting here going, you know, I, I know how to fix all this stuff, but what if I updated it to today's standard and I'm the whole get off my lawn tin visor guy. So (laughs) I'm, I'm just listening, thinking uh, as you're talking very interesting stuff. I might have to do a project or two. Well, I'll, I'll throw, I'll throw one, um, rule set that I put on myself before I began doing anything like this. Uh, Technology becomes obsolete much faster than your house does. So whatever you put in your house, if you're putting it in permanently, make sure that you have a way to get it out when it becomes obsolete because your house will still be there when the controller or the Insteon switch or the light fixture or whatever has lived its natural life because it may only be a year or two before it's replaced by something really cool that we just have to have so the the next thought there is is you know i'm i am known internationally as the tightwad tech um so i look at these and i think you know uh 50 feet of romax and uh, a junction box and a ceiling fan from home depot is a couple hundred bucks or a light switch is a couple hundred bucks um where's is there, I mean, as somebody who's gone down this road, do you actually see a return on that investment or is it an expensive hobby just like golf? Um, I think it would have been more of a return on investment before they invented the LED light. Because if you were powering a typical, you know, 40 or 60 watt bulb, the old incandescent style bulb, the cost of that bulb was significant. So if you were able to turn it off, turn it down or, or you know, not use it, the savings are great, but you replace it with an LED bulb that draws eight watts and all of a sudden it's not so much of a saving. So there's probably something to be said for saving money on this, but I'm not absolutely sure if that should be the driving factor. If you're going to do it, do it for the geekiness of it all. Do it for the cool smart home thing that you can feel proud that you put together and that, you know, you can show you your buddies, how the lights dim automatically at nine o'clock at night or that the shutters go up and down when you want to watch that movie and you can press a button and the whole room turns into a theater. I mean, that's the stuff that is cool. But if you're trying to do it to save money based on power, just change your bulbs out with LED bulbs and you've probably done it. And it's it's getting to the point now where that's cost effective. An LED bulb now is 2 or $3 as opposed to 20 or $30. Um, I've got... Of the four lights that are on me right now, two of them are LEDs and two of them are compact fluorescents. The LEDs are better light. Uh, they're dimmable. They're, it's just a better system. But at this point, they're still two to three times the cost of a compact fluorescent. But a few years ago, compact fluorescent was two or three times the cost of, a, of an incandescent. So we're getting to that point where, yeah, you're right. An LED is going to be the way to do it. And, and uh, that's a way to, to take old infrastructure and make it modern. But in a situation where you're starting new, it may be better to start with new infrastructure. 
and and new doesn't have to be in a, a new house, but a remodel or a, a renovation. Um, you can do things. You know, I've always said that if uh, when I build a house, every wall will have at least two empty conduits in it, in every room. Um, you know, so in a four room, uh, uh, four wall room, I'm looking at a minimum of eight conduits, just because. You know, whatever you try to do, no matter how good wireless gets, it's always going to need to be wired to something at some point. I mean, we're at least a full human generation, 40 or 50 years away from true wirelessness. Everything that we have today that we call wireless is wired with wireless extension. So I'm a big believer in copper at this point. And on all the wireless we have right now, it's fractionally as good as wired. So you take the best wireless router and put it six inches away from the best wireless receiver, it's still fractionally as good as copper running hundreds of meters. Uh, So I'm a big believer in copper, and I think that the really simple way to future-proof a new construction is stick some conduit in the wall. You know, And if you've spent any time like I have fishing wire through walls, you appreciate conduit. Uh, And make sure you put a string in there, people. Never put a conduit up that you don't put a string in. It just makes (laughs) me insane when I see people put brand new conduit in and don't put three cents worth of string in it but that's that's another story uh, well you, you, you're right we could do a whole show on the the essence of this sort of stuff because there are so many things to talk about in terms of protocols controllers and what your options are but you can actually do a an old house with just change out the light switches and completely control everything from that there are ways to do it it, it would take more than one you know a segment on a show here to cover right. it or maybe we could bleed that in over some time or something and maybe that'll be a good theme month somewhere down the line yeah there you go uh, but i i think that that is the the 21st century ethos is the the dumb machines collaborating to do smart things uh instead of the smart machine uh i think the smart machines are still going to be there, but you're going to have a much greater proliferation of dumb devices. Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. You know, we've, we've decentralized computing so much now that, um, you can do a whole lot with, with cheap devices. And, and if you've spent any time just cruising around com slash Amazon, you can do a lot for 30 bucks. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been looking at doing, and I was talking about it before we went on the show is in my kitchen, um, there, there's a light switch on on either end of the room, but the 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 light switch that that gets that's on one side is just enough light to get across to the other side. Realistically, it's it's it doesn't turn on much light. And one of the things that I uh, want to do is like under the cabinets um, is you know in any home under the cabinets is a dark space, and that's also where you do most of your cutting. It's kind of a bad thing to have sharp items in the darkest place in your kitchen. So the way you do that is task lighting, and and lots of modern kitchens have under-cabinet task lighting. Well, I thought I could literally kill two birds with one digital stone and run some LED lights uh, to motion sensors under the cabinets so that when I walk into a room, the task lighting comes on. That is enough lighting to, you know, to, to let me not stub my toe, but also not blind me before I've had my coffee in the morning. Um, and so I want to be able to walk into the kitchen and have the lights come on and just have those lights on anytime, all the time when somebody's in the kitchen. And because they're LED, because they're high efficiency, because they're low voltage, uh, that's not a problem. They will last years before they have to be replaced uh, and and cost me pennies uh, a month, not a day, pennies a month to run. 
so I started looking around uh, on uh, elementopi.com slash Amazon and, and found that I could do the whole kitchen with uh, smart sensors and LED uh, lights and wall warts and all that for 100 bucks. And that's if I buy the good stuff. Uh, you know, I could probably do it for less than that. And so these things that we're talking about, these smart home uh, things don't have to be expensive. Now, we often, you know, the stuff Miles was talking about, um, you know, you could spend $300 on a light switch. That's that's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. But you don't necessarily have to. You could start small. And, and like, like we also, uh, he already said, is whatever you put in now is going to be... Um, uh, I, I don't like the word obsolete. Uh, it's going to be uh, surpassed by something new. You know, obsolete. I've preached on this before. Obsolete means it no longer does its job. Um, you know, I've got a refrigerator in my garage that's uh, like thirty years old. It's not obsolete. It still th- keeps things cold. Nobody would go out and buy that refrigerator. In that ca- case, it has been surpassed, but it still does its job. It still th- keeps things it's cold. It's been upstaged. Right. In fact, it does things. It does its job so well. Sometimes it freezes things. So that's still good. It still does its job really well. Uh, so uh, that's that's kind of a, a pet peeve of mine when people talk about obsolete equipment. No, it still does its job. But yeah, it's been there are better options available. And if you're always wanting the best and, and brightest, um, then you can just it just be a big hole that you throw money into. But I've never been interested in the best and the brightest. I've been interested in in the best. You know, the the not the newest, not the best, not the the but the functional. You know, uh, the thing that works really well. And, and reliable and often the newest stuff is not what you wanted to go with if you want reliability you want two or three generations old you want something that has had the the wrinkles ironed out of it what are your thoughts on that miles well you you're right um a lot of the traditional manufacturers of things like electrical switches and dimmer switches and so on have actually become i, I guess they've been reluctantly sort of dragged to the party of smart homes and now they're offering their devices with z-wave connectivity or Incyon connectivity and surprisingly they're not expensive my light switches which i get uh you can get different variations but say for example just a simple on off light switch that you would mount just in place of a normal light switch 27 bucks uh if i want that to be a dimmable light switch where you can turn it on or off or you can hold it down and then it dims maybe 40 bucks um if i compare that with what it's going to cost me for a high-grade, decent switch from Home Depot, maybe I'm paying 20% more, maybe 30 uh, But that's still a high-grade, decent switch. So you could put it in, never connect it to anything, never try and program it, but just know that the day will come one day when you want to that you could. And for the cost differential, maybe it's worthwhile. I mean, I, I'm not an electrician, so every time somebody wants to open up the wall and... and install a switch i get jitters i'm a low voltage kind of guy um but uh you know if you're going to open it up open it up and put in something that's that's current and just run it like it's you know 1985 party like it's 1985 i like it Uh, i just recently installed down in in my basement uh, uh an electrical outlet it's a gfci outlet with two usb ports in it so it's got a little transformer in there um and that's that's a simple fix. It cost me, I don't know, I don't even know how much it cost me. It wasn't much. It was so much so that I don't know how much it cost me. Uh, you know, if it had been $100, I would know how much it cost me. Um, but now when I'm downstairs and I want to charge my phone, I don't have to go looking for something. You know, it's just right there. Um, and I know, you know, like, this, this is an apples to oranges kind of things. I get that. But, 
like the Sonos smart home systems that where you can uh, route music through your home and, and have your playlist going. That's a great thing. Or you could do what I did and buy 10 Bluetooth speakers and set them in each room of the house. And as your phone moves from room to room, it connects to them and your, your music follows you everywhere you go. Um, huh. Way cheaper. Um, probably not the same quality, but it's good enough quality for me. So I can have my music follow me as long as my phone follows me. And let's face it, I'm a geek. My phone is never out of my reach. Um, yeah. Do you want, do you need music playing in the half of the house where nobody is? Exactly. So. But you could yes, do you it. Yes, you do. Is what you're supposed to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the, the geek is like, well, but I can. And so I must. Exactly. Uh, and so, again, I, I follow that tightwad ethic of uh, one of the things I used to tell when I was in education is I, I, I would tell my teachers, they'd be always, you know, why are we using open office? Uh, is it because we can't afford Microsoft Office? And, and the refrain I came up with is I never bring something to you because it's cheap. I bring it to you because it's good. And I may have started looking at it because it's cheap or free, but I probably threw away a hundred things you never saw that were free but weren't good. But there, just because it's free doesn't necessarily mean it isn't good. And that's and just because it's cheap doesn't necessarily mean it isn't good. It may not be the best. I don't always need the best. I need good. I need good enough. You know, uh, the the old line: perfection is the enemy of good enough. I'm quite happy with good enough most of the time. Sometimes I want perfection. But good enough, most of the time, does the job, and good enough can be had at at twenty percent of the cost of perfection. As long as the yep. individual is willing to take responsibility for themselves, that they're willing to learn it. Yeah, yeah. there is that. You got to be willing to to tinker, and that's what I I like to tinker. You know, I always again when when we're talking about Linux or open source software, I caution people against using the cost free nature of something as a selling point. Don't sell me on the fact that Linux is free. Tell me it's good. Tell me it works. And then say, oh, by the way, it's free. And if you can't tell me it's good, you can't tell me it's works, then don't talk to me at all because it doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, and, you know, the open sprinkler, open is in the name, but you're going to pay 150 bucks for it. Um, is it worth $150? Miles thinks so. Um, and so, you know, does it compare to other things at about 150 Again, Miles thinks so. Uh, I can only take his word for it. But there are there are open source purists who think that if you pay anything for the something with the word open in it, you're a sellout. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think is that horse com- fully beaten? Are we? Is it dead? I, I mean, we've consistently beat that horse for five years. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's still dead. Uh, so let's. Uh, Let's maybe maybe make some sort of pact between us that uh, we're almost done with 2015 now. Let's make 2016 the year that we make our home smart. Uh, you know, Seth, you've got an older home that you would be an excellent test case scenario of making, you know, a, a 60, 70, I don't know how old it is, uh, home, year old home, modern, you know. and yeah, it, It's 40 years old. Okay. All right. 40 years. Uh, and mine is... Uh, Around that, yeah. I mean, the 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 house that I'm selling in Texas right now was built in the '60s, so it's it's almost uh, 60 years old, and and this one was built in the '80s, so it's 40 years. It's the same age uh, I am, more or less. Uh, I was I was I was built in the '70s. Uh, so anyway, it, it's just an interesting thought of of taking the old and making it new um, in such a way that a doesn't break the bank and b gets spousal approval. You know, uh, if if my wife 
has well, to re- I can't do that then. Well, Sorry. Yeah. Well, you get dad approval, you know, 70 plus year old dad. So that's even better. Um, if my wife has to read an instruction manual to turn on the light, uh, I don't, I don't have a happy wife. Uh, so it's got to be simple. It's got to look like a light, you know, and, and I've got, you know, I've got the non-technical spouse and I've got the, the, the now eight year old. Um, and that's a, if I can please both of them and get my geek on, that's a win, win, win. And there aren't so far, honestly, there aren't a lot of things that can do that. Well, we can, we can take that challenge on. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll paint you a picture. Imagine a house that just does everything and you don't have to have a user interface to it because there's no need anymore. That, like that's it. what, that's what we have to achieve. And then the, the spousal approvals and, or the, the seven year old father approval is a no brainer because they don't have to do anything. It just comes pre-built with everything you ever wanted and it's just there and you don't think about it and it just works. I mean, that would be ideal, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I want, yeah. uh, I want a system where my garage door opens when I pull into the driveway. That sounds can simple, do. right? You can do that. Uh, but it can't open when anybody pulls into the driveway. It's got to be me, you know, uh, or, or my wife. Um, it's got to be, you know, somehow it's got to know who I am or uh, who my car is. Uh, these are simple things. But right now, I mean, I sound like such a privileged uh, you know, first world problems. Right now, I have to reach up and push the garage door opener button every time I want the garage door to open. How ridiculous is that? Oh my gosh, Mark! How can you stand yeah. to live there? So this is not a thing I need, but this is a thing I want, and this is a thing that my geek uh, would enjoy investigating. Some sort of, you know, I'm thinking RFID tag combination with Bluetooth because it's got to know that it's my phone in the car. Right, it's got to have that combination of devices, and so maybe that combined with a motion sensor, so that when all those three things go, it opens up. And I don't want to have to do a a a code. I don't want to have to do any kind of authentication. It has to be passive authentication. That's a that's an interesting geek uh, experience. What's it going to gain me? I don't have to reach up and push a button. So it's a it's not much gain, but it's an interesting experiment. Add a camera that does character recognition on your license plates and you those have to be inputted that would keep everything else from opening it oh i like it we can do that too uh the the guy who made open sprinkler has an open garage door opener project and uh, i think he's selling that too i i'm I'm all in I'll, i'll get one all right so that's that's the 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 current goal is make my garage door opener open for only me every time I like it. So it's got to be that. So the interesting, Seth, you you license plates. Georgia doesn't have front license plates. So if I did that, I'd have to back into my my driveway every time, or I'd have to have two sensors, one wirelessly connected out to a tree out or out on the mailbox or something. I can see my rear one. So that's a, I don't. That may not work. It doesn't have to be license plate. It can be whatever because it's it's optical recognition, right? So or Bluetooth low energy, which has a unique ID. That goes right. broadcasts out. We we can make it work. Yeah, just something in my car all the time. A little Bluetooth LE nub that's always there, uh, plugged into you know an outlet. These these are things that could happen. Um, hmm. Of course, then I have to be able to override it. You know, uh, I need to be able to still open the garage door if I'm not there. If my car's in the shop, and I need to be able to put the garage door down <laughs> if I don't actually want it open. So, but the the, the what's ridiculous about this is this is. I'm going to spend money and and time and effort and energy 
to do something with no functional good. That that's sort of the definition of a geek, right? Um, or going to a movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and then if I ever resell the house. <laughs> I've got to have some sort of owner's manual that says, okay, when you want the garage door to open, these fourth factors must come into play. <laughs> we have to re- we have to train the optical character recognition on your car. And if you get a new car, if you're driving a rental for a week, you've got to, <laughs> that's funny. It's like the, the, the user's manual I used to have for the entertainment center. You know, I fixed that problem with money. I bought a Harmony, uh, Logitech Harmony remote and you now, on the touch screen, you push where it says watch TV and it figures out the rest. But prior to that, there were table, there were remotes laid out on the table with an instruction sheet with pictures. If you want to watch a movie, first press this, then press this, then press this, then change that. Uh, so technology solved that, but I didn't get to do it in the tightwad way. I had to spend money on it. <laughs> right. But you had the other considerations, you know, happy wife, yeah. happy kids. And, so. yeah, and my, you know, my kids from the age of, of two up knew how to do that. And so I consider that successful engineering. That's good technology. And I don't mind paying for it when I could, you know, I, I've had a two-year-old three times now. And each of those two-year-olds had no trouble understanding that when I see that picture of popcorn, that means I want to watch a movie. So I just push the button. So, you know. <laughs> Rick, my, my Rick in the chat room <laughs> says, "I'm sorry, Miles." Rick in the okay. chat room says, "I had the same sheet, but no pictures. You were high tech. Yeah, I don't do anything halfway. I had a spreadsheet, <laughs> Rick." <laughs> well, I'll go. I'll go Uber geek on you here. My home controller, which only actually cost me about four hundred bucks, which is not only. I mean, it's a significant amount of money. It's got a REST API, so I can write software that does anything I want with this thing remotely, and and build my own user interface to it, so that it just you know, here's a, I don't know, you can get one of those touchscreen add-ons to a Raspberry Pi mounted into the wall, have a little boot-up Linux app that has touchscreen, press this button and the lights go on or this button or whatever, and it's just sending REST API signals to the controller. We can make this thing wife-friendly. Yeah. There's not a problem. It's just a question of how geeky we want to go and how much time and energy we want to put into it. Yeah, that's, that's actually another of my goals in my house is uh, I want an intercom system. But I don't want an intercom. I want an Android tablet hanging on the wall with a with a, a program where there's a button for each room in the house, and you put a button and a and another Android because I could go buy you know Amazon Fire tablets uh, at fifty bucks each, you know, in a packet of five. Yeah, I've got three bedrooms, uh, or excuse me, four bedrooms in a basement. You know, there you go. That covers a lot of them right there. And so you push the uh, uh, Amelia's bedroom button, and it buzzes. And she responds via voice because why should she have to get up and walk across the room? That's just ridiculous. And, of course, I need a, a parent mode where I can activate the camera when the oldest is in there with her boyfriend. You know, these these are long-term goals that I have for my house. Look at us. A bunch of Dr. Frankensteins here. <laughs> <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, my... my this is the 21st century. Yesterday, um, I decided to introduce my children to the glory that is uh, um, Back to the Future. And so we, uh, we've we had it. Uh, I own the, the box set, but we'd never watched it because it's a there. As I first started watching it as a parent, I had forgotten how much language was peppered throughout movies from the 80s. And it's, it's language that I don't necessarily want my eight-year-old to hear. Um, there's a new service. I've talked about it before. Uh, I really like it and you may or may not, but it's called VidAngel 
and it lets you buy a movie and that's the 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 way they get around the dmca you buy a movie for twenty dollars um and you can now that you own the movie you can filter it so you go through the set of filters and you say i don't want to hear this word i don't want to see this scene um and then you watch it and then you sell it back for 19 dollars. so the end result is it costs you a dollar to watch the movie um so that's a way that i was able to introduce my children to uh more adult things than i actually want them to see but in a safe fashion all right enough of a commercial for that uh i don't get any endorsement for that i just think it's a great service um so we watched back to the future uh yesterday and i was about to uh, i needed to tell my daughter my 14 year old almost 14 uh hermit of a child who spends her life upstairs watching youtube um that you know hey we're going to watch a movie do you want to join us and so because this is the 21st century we texted her because that's what you do um instead of you know going up the stairs that's ridiculous i'm not gonna get off the couch and go upstairs that's and, what uh, littler kids are for that's you right send them up there yeah well the, none of them were around at the time so oh. i would have had to yell to, to get one of those so i just made a phone call up 20 feet <laughs> to the bedroom or actually a, a text one of those two i forget what it was but anyway that that's just uh, a digression there if i'd had the intercom system right and if i'd had the okay if i'm the reason i'm doing it uh, uh um want to do android tablets is because then i could key things like uh the echo uh open software that sort of stuff so i can say you know uh okay alexa um uh, buzz my wife's room you know or buzz my daughter's room and it will uh and because all of this is about me not having to get up off the couch in case you haven't figured that out um (laughs) anyway that that was a random thing there uh let's see uh check out uh check out oh uh, rick said he used to have a device that would turn off audio when profanity it was called uh curse free tv i had one of those too it was great uh, vid angel is sort of the the version of that anyway uh so let's do a little bit of news unless you guys have more to say about the smart home I, i'm excited about this project i think we can make something happen it's all i've just got to figure out what to do i have I am more, I don't know, I'm more of a, I've always been this way. Fix something that's broken rather than design something that's not there. So I might have to, I might have to be assigned a project for this one. Okay. Uh, You know, and my philosophy is why do it on paper when a spreadsheet will do? Um, So, you know, I'm always, I'm always that guy. When, when we moved into this house, um, I went through every room and took, uh, measurements of every room and then i measured all my furniture and then i created scale drawings of each of the rooms and each of the furnitures um and then i sat down with my children and said okay here's your new bedroom this thing here is your bed this is your dresser uh, uh drag them around and see how you want things to go and so they arranged their rooms we arranged the living room the bedroom all of that sort of stuff before then i printed that out and then when we moved, I stuck that on the wall so that the people who were helping me move, as they walked up, they said, okay, in this room, the dresser goes over here. Um, that's how super geeky and organized I am. So when you – go ahead, Seth. See, I learned from my dad, let's get started and then figure out what we need. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, why make one trip to the store when 17 will do just as nicely? So, Yeah, that's funny. Let's uh, shoot first and ask questions later. I like it. Yep. Bang, 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 bang. Ready, aim. We're out of ammo. That's that's <laughs> the Anderson family motto sometimes. Are you friend or foe? Dead guy. Yeah. Oops. 
So uh, I want to hit this uh, news story that you have in there uh, because this this hits um, what I'm, I'm going to be honest, Seth, is becoming an obsession of yours, uh, and that really is, is the the whole Bitcoin thing, um, but also you know the, uh, using the blockchain in in f- novel ways. So there's there was an article recently, a couple of them uh, about using the blockchain to make your electric bill cheaper. Yeah, and actually, Miles sent this over to me. Um, it's um, from Hacker News. Um, Bitcoin technology is fueling the peer-to-peer solar revolution. So, and one of the cool things about this is that, and this is in Australia, they are testing the blockchain to allow homeowners with solar power to sell their excess energy to their neighbors rather than back to the utility companies because, you know, the utility company, for example. In the United States, the average rate is 14 cents a kilowatt hour that they sell you. Uh, shout out to co-ops. I pay seven. Woohoo! Love me some Wood County Electric Company co-op. Uh, but anyway, if they'll buy from you, they only buy at some much lower rate, say two or three cents an hour. And, you know, they pocket that difference and that's how they make their profit. So with the peer-to-peer electricity, you know, this they're not going to pay 14 cents to you because they can get from the electric company anytime, but they might pay you seven or eight or 10 cents. So you are selling your excess electricity and you're making more money. Um, it lightens the load for the electric company as well. And it, I just think it's pretty cool. And they're talking about using the blockchain to like prove that electricity was made here. Um, and all of this is kind of a neat thing. I wonder how well it will work, but it's just kind of one of these ways where something, you know, Bitcoin technology has disrupted, and that's a nice good buzzword that people like to use these days, another industry, in this case, the electrical industry. I kind of hope it works out. I think it will. You know, (laughs) I I say this and uh, any Australians out there, you can lambast me on this one. We Aussies, we don't trust anybody. At the end of the day, we don't trust our utility companies because they'll say, well, we'll buy, you know, X kilowatt from you for, I don't know, 10 cents, whatever it might be. And then a year later, they're paying you two. And you're going, oh, great. Now what do I do? I'm an entrenched, uh, you know, customer here. I can't get off the utility company or I don't have any power. So these guys have basically said, well, bypass the utility company altogether. We'll create our own power. And if you're in a home that only uses, I don't know, maybe 8,000 kilowatts uh, then and you're generating 12, sell the excess to your neighbor who might be using 14 and only generating 12. And you win and they win and the util- utility company's out of the picture. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And I, I wish them the best of luck. I really wish we had something like that here in Phoenix because you don't want to see my power bill. It's horrible. And you live in a perfect place for solar power. I mean, you have sun. You have lots of sun, and you have very few trees. You'd think Phoenix would be a hotbed for solar power. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, um, I agree. And and I'm, I watched a guy on YouTube this week who had done a four thousand square foot home in Texas with solar, put thirty nine panels up, and calculated. And he's a computer guy, you know, geeky kind of like us. Um, he worked out that the 39 panels based on current technology, the yield that he could get from that only supported two-thirds of his power requirement for his home. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got to convert his numbers to my numbers, and yeah, we're not quite there yet. Um, it, either I 
turn off half the stuff in my house and not run an air conditioner through five months of, you know, post 100 or greater than 100 degree Fahrenheit days. Um, and then maybe I could generate enough power, but that's, that's the, the downside. We got a lot of sun, but five months of the year, I got a $750 a month power bill because, mm. because I have to run my air conditioners nonstop and they, and they never stop, you know, that's a problem. Yes. So, uh, Seth, did you want to talk a little bit about the discussion you and I were having the other night, or do you want to keep that between us? Because it's germane to this conversation. Um, I mean, we we can. You know, I've been, I am really interested in Bitcoin mining, and I would love to be able to do it, but the because Bitcoin mining has gotten so complicated, you know, the um the the difficulty of the blocks that are being solved is so great it really takes specialized hardware and with any specialized hardware it's very expensive and so you know in most places in america it's really cost um, ineffective to mine you the best you will probably do is maybe break even Uh, and so you know you're more doing it for a hobby and you know I, i don't think you know let me spend a couple of thousand dollars and i'm set for life but i would like to see something that could pay off and, you know, even if it takes a couple of years and then provide just a, you know, a little bit of money on the side to kind of, ha- you know, have fun and you'd have to reinvest and stuff. But, um, so you're paying, I, I'm sorry. I just had a brain fart here, Mark, go for a second while I try to figure out what I was saying. <laughs> well, he and I were looking at devices, uh, the, the rough numbers, and these are all rough numbers because there's just no way to know exactly what it was but for an outlay initial outlay of about six thousand dollars you could expect a return of an investment of about six hundred dollars per month not counting electrical cost and so we figured that um at his rate it would cost him about three hundred dollars a month just to run this thing not counting any cooling that he would have to do call it 400 uh to to run an air conditioner on it so he's looking at a net gain of about two hundred dollars per month for a $6,000 initial outlay. Um, I looked at that and think, well, those numbers just don't add up. He looks at that and thinks, long-term gold mine, baby. Well, you know, it's one of those things. If I had the $10,000, like a windfall somehow, I definitely wouldn't borrow money to do that because that would just be stupid, which isn't to say I won't borrow money to do something (laughs) like that. But, you know, it's one of those, hey, you've won $10,000 from this contest you didn't know you got entered into. It's like, really? I think I want to set up a Bitcoin mine. But um, because, you know, I I have a shed with electricity ran to it. It's got walls. We halfway insulated it before we stopped. I could finish that, put a big window unit in it. I can run internet to it and then I would be set. So, um, but yeah, so using something like this, you know, the course where I live, I would have to cut down some trees to get more sunlight on the roof, but something like this, I could do this project for fun, some type of solar thing. And then that would allow, um, that would make the Bitcoin mining more cost effective, whether it would be profitable or not, or how soon it, you would get your ROI. There's a nice good industry buzzword for you back. You know, it would be shorter if you have a cheaper uh, source of electricity. Dude, I'm moving to Iceland. They've got really cheap power up there. <laughs> and yeah. and cooling isn't a problem. No, no, not a problem at all. Maybe I don't want to be up there in the winter, but, you know. 
<laughs> well, you could use the heat from the Bitcoin miners to heat your home. So, <laughs> um, I, that you know, again, I, I every time we talk about Bitcoin, I get uh, comments like, "Would you get off the Bitcoin already?" But it's it's such a fascinating technology, and so, not just the technology, but the idea um, is that you know it is it's intentionally harder to make money on it. That's the whole point. It's a it's an inflation check. Uh, you there's a there's a, a hard ceiling at which you cannot go above, and the closer you approach that hard ceiling, the harder it is to make money at it. So, but my what I don't understand is, are we now disincentivizing people to um, verify transactions? So when you make a transaction, it has to be verified in the blockchain, and the verification is part of that mining process. When when the money dries up. What is the impetus to continue running devices to verify the blockchain? Well, has the has you know Bitcoin is a deflationary currency. It's not an inflationary. So because it's deflationary, over time, as more people use it, the price will go up. So in theory, what will happen is the price will go up where the transaction fee is a sizable enough amount of money to keep the miners mining. So one problem against that is the explosion of alternative digital currencies. There's there there can't be billions of currencies. There there can only really be a couple and any of them be profitable. So if there's too many currencies, then they will get to a point to where they collapse. And, you know, when money collapses, uh, you have hyperinflation and it takes a wheelbarrow of money to buy a loaf of bread. Something's wrong with your economy. Whenever nobody does the transactions, then Bitcoin will cease to be effective. Uh, and then what would happen is the difficulty would get easier because fewer people are doing them. And then all of a sudden, those old mining rigs out there would all of a sudden become profitable to run again. So the cost would dip down. Transactions would get faster. People would use them. The cost of the effectiveness would go back up. So it would just be kind of – and then it will approach an equilibrium because that's the way the system is designed to where it takes – you know, how hard, how long would it take the current miners to mine last time's blocks? And so if there were fewer miners, then the difficulty would actually go down rather than up. At least that's my understanding. Miles, you probably know a lot more and you're cringing at what I just said. No, actually, no, I think your, your essence is right. I mean, we've got a big problem in the Bitcoin community right now, and that is that the vast majority of Bitcoin mines are in the Republic of China. And that's because the Republic of China, the government is actually subsidizing the power and operational costs of the Bitcoin mines as a ploy to try to get the majority of mining being done within that region. Now, the reason for that is, you know, it's political eco stuff and they want to have control over a dominant currency. And at the end of the day, you know, if Bitcoin mines pop up all over the world, and it's truly decentralized, which was the original vision, then that problem goes away. But if you think about the whole reason why Bitcoin was there, it's to avert the central bank fiat currency problems that we have. And by creating a situation where all of the mines are in one country, you've just created the same problem that you were trying to avoid. You've now got a central bank of China that controls Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm 
hey, you go for it, Seth. I want you to do that because it helps everybody. We need to distribute this thing. It's supposed to be decentralized. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. Electricity where I live is basically seven cents a kilowatt versus 14 in, you know, in commercial companies. So it becomes more economically feasible for there to be um, a lot of data centers. <laughs> I could just imagine that out in the country you have these massive data centers um, with their pipes to the internet. That would be kind of funny. So, Yeah, but the reason I bring it up is the, the intellectual uh, dichotomy there of the by making the Bitcoin, uh, the, the blockchain more difficult to calculate, we ensure... Uh, a non-inflationary currency, not necessarily deflationary, but certainly stagnant at the at the best. But we also de-incentivize. So I kind of it seems to me like a, a chink in the armor of an otherwise really well thought out plan. Uh, you now we've we've reached a point now where the average consumer can't do it at all. It's just not possible for an average consumer to to crack the code, so to speak, and make any any profit. Um, could the average consumer on you know just an i7 PC laying around uh, make any money verifying transactions, or is that all the same? I don't even know enough about the technology. Is the mining of of gold of currency the same as verifying transactions? Is one an offshoot of the other? Well, it's basically the same thing. I mean, yeah. what you're trying to do is solve a mathematical problem for proof of work. So, so if I if I can't. If it's it's beyond the goal of the regular person, and it's only at the point now of state actors, because the money is so the the equations are so much that you just can't do it without losing money, um, then we've we have a self defeating situation where you're f- sort of forcing Bitcoin to reach its uh, zenith, you know, before it's finished. But at the same time, you cannot transact Bitcoin without miners it's not like gold where you've mined all the gold there is but you can still transact the gold around in the case of bitcoin the transaction and the mining is the same thing so if nobody's mining you cannot transact right we have that problem right now because of the block size Um, it's taking way too long to authenticate a transaction and there's been a huge debate in the in the bitcoin development community over how to address this problem and there are significant odds at trying to solve that going on right now and I don't know how long it's going to take before they all put on their big boy pants and come up with a compromise because it's just been going on way too long. But it is what it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I think we're at that point where Bitcoin's progressed from being a piece of technology that people want to mine on in the same way that gold was discovered in the ground and people worked out how to dig it out of the ground and so on. And we've gone to the next tier, which is now we've got this thing. What? How do we make transactions work and how do we make the the user interface as simple so my mom could do it or you know my grandma could do it um and we're not there yet that's actually i think where the key opportunities lie i think mining is i'm not going to say it's a done deal and it's it's not something that we can do i don't think bitcoin itself is ever going to go away i think its value is always going to continue to go up because of its finite nature but its opportunities are not so much in mining they're more in applications and how do we actually make this technology work so that the average Joe can use it as easy as they can use their Visa card. But if every time somebody uses a, a Bitcoin Visa card, mining has to happen, you you have yeah. you know opposite ends of the same uh, spectrum there that 
if one can't be done, the other can't be done. Right. There. I mean, there are side chains and, and there's a lot of a, uh, sort of sub-projects going on in the Bitcoin community that try to address this problem. Uh, but it's really an issue about the block size and how, how much a miner can process in an in a individual instance. Um, and that's the big debate, which is not getting solved right now, and hence it's taking 20 minutes to process your purchase of uh, something on Purse or or uh, wherever you're buying something with Bitcoin Newegg or something like that. So I think the answer is that is for everybody to jump out of Bitcoin and into Ethereum because I'm invested in Ethereum and <laughs> Ethereum, and that would work out really well for me. <laughs> yeah, they're going to suffer the same issue, I think. But, you know, it, it should also be pointed out that when you write a check to somebody and you give it, it takes the bank three to five business days right. for an automated clearinghouse to process that transaction. So Bitcoin's still doing pretty good. Uh, and, you know, when recently with buying the whole house thing, I, I ran into that same thing. It's, you know, you've you've got to do a bank transfer, which takes, you know, minimum of four to eight hours uh, up to five days uh, to do, you know, for one bank to tell another bank, yeah, he's got the money. Um, this could be done via a phone call. One guy at bank A could pick up a phone and call uh, one guy at bank B and say, has he got $50,000 in his account? Yeah. Okay. Done. But no, it takes five days because of the entrenched nature of it. But I can go to, to eBay and buy something on PayPal and the money is there in milliseconds. So there's there's definitely problems still to be solved there. I think so. And, you know, the thing is, everybody get, you know, you can invest a couple of hundred dollars and you could make maybe a dollar a month. So, you know, everybody just needs to set up a little Bitcoin mine as a hobby, not to make money. But, um, you know, you can get a little Raspberry Pi and a USB thing that plugs into it. And you can make, like I say, maybe a dollar a month doing that. You know, is that could a could a Raspberry Pi even do a single transaction ever in the life of the device? Maybe in the life it could do one, but what it can do is it can run the controller software that interfaces with the um, special made circuit that is powered via a USB port. Okay. Because, I mean, my your Android phone can mine, but you're getting point K hashes um, whenever you really need uh, gigahertz to make and multiple gigahertz to make any money giga but hashes you, you mean yeah giga hashes and you're doing point k with an android tablet but again that's not a super fast tablet your phone like a top of the line brand new phone might be able to do one or two k so you would make a penny a month for the five minutes that the battery lasted <laughs> right all right, let's move on to another problem that is that's seemingly intractable, and that is uh, patent trolls. And the EFF says, just like anywhere else on the internet, don't feed the trolls. Yeah, so EFF, they have a new little, you know, and again, they're the EFF, so... I, but this one's kind of good. They are like doing like kind of an ad campaign to try to get universities not to sell their patents to patent trolls. So... I hope this works out because I think patent trolls, I mean, I understand a lawyer wants to work and what do lawyers do? They litigate. So what better profession for lawyers than to buy up a bunch of patents and throw lawsuits at everybody? You know, it really, that 
they have a lot of free time. So that's what they're doing. But so they're trying to, the EFF is trying to do the public interest patent pledge um, to get universities to not, you know, hamper future R&D by selling out their patents to patent trolls. So go EFF. I'm behind you on this one. Yeah, I signed up for this. I put my name down on that one because my daughter's in University of Arizona right now. And it just seems like we pay enough money to the universities for students, uh, the tuition, accommodation, everything else. And the last thing in the world I want to be doing is funding something that just makes my life more difficult. Right. Yeah. I mean, there will always be trolls. They're a fact of, the, of, of life. Anytime you build a bridge, a troll will move in under it. But don't feed the trolls. Right. Uh, ever. All right, moving on to another thing that has people mad, uh, and that is YouTube says, if you cuss, you can't make no money. Now, this is not new, but newly people got mad about it. Well, or basically, they kind of started enforcing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, I mean, okay, we've had the whole conversation. This isn't censorship because the government's, and YouTube's not even saying you can't cuss. They're just saying any money, any advertising that comes out, we get you. The maker don't doesn't get it because we don't want cussing on YouTube. You know, I'm not a big cusser and I try not to sprinkle that language everywhere, but it's a, to me, I don't know, make a, make a YouTube for kids, uh, competitor to go up against Disney, but let YouTube be real life. I, I think this is kind of stupid myself. And but of course, again, it's it's their YouTube. They can do what they want to with it. In this article, uh, Philip DeFranco, a popular YouTuber with four and a half million subscribers, says, "Quote: By taking away monetization, monetization, it is a form of censorship." Um, yeah, no, I, I I don't think it is. But you know, again, it's YouTube's living room. Um, I. This doesn't bother me. I mean, Seth, it's interesting that you think uh, this is not necessarily a good thing. This doesn't bother me at all. This is if you own the pipes, you get to define the rules, and um, that I, it doesn't bother me. It's just a thing. Um, now, if I, I don't, maybe maybe if my living came from YouTube videos, I'd feel differently about it. But uh, currently, I just I just don't see this as a as a thing. Miles, break the tie for us. Uh. It's a thing for those that already have YouTube channels and hundreds of thousands of subscribers and are making a living uh, off their shows who have potentially over maybe the last couple of years made cussing a thing. It's just, you know, part of their way of doing their, their shows. And all of a sudden, to them, without warning their advertising is being switched off on their videos, hence they're not monetizing anything on their on their content. However, they did sign up for terms of service and they signed up to say, you know, we, re- we reserve the right to control uh, the monetization distribution that is YouTube and don't cuss. But they want to cuss. So, okay, fine. They want to cuss, but they're not going to make any money out of it. And that's what they're, off of, they're on about. They're not, they're not going to have their videos uh, not being shown They'll continue to show them. Their subscribers can continue to watch them. They're just not going to make any money out of it. And that that's where the problem is. And they're saying, well, I'm not going to make videos if I'm not going to make any money. Well, was it really all about money in the first place with YouTube? I don't know. I think well, it's kind of morphed people, into that. For those people who 
use it to make money. It really is. But okay, here's the language from support.google.com slash YouTube. Um, inappropriate language, including harassment, profanity, and vulgar language. So what is profanity? Is crap profanity? Some people would think so. Um, you know, so they, they tell you, they give you the category, but they don't give you what falls into that category. And so in order to make sure nothing you say is profane, you've got to use Sunday school 1950s approved uh, language because how close in the gray area can you get? And so it's one of those things. If they're going to enforce this, then they need to give you hard and fast rules of what is and isn't profane and vulgar. Well, you just said hard and fast, and that's profane. And so uh, this ad uh, can't be uh, supported, uh, can't, can't have ads. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so, what, so that's my problem with it. What, what's interesting is this, this is Google. This is what Google always does. They, they throw a Python script at it and, and somebody tweaked a line of code in the Python script and it started rejecting more than normal. Um, and so this made people mad. And so, you know, if if you don't know what obscenity is, how can you tell a Python script what obscenity is? So I accept that point, Seth, that you, you don't know what it is. But also, they're calling it advertiser-friendly. Shouldn't the advertisers get to make that call? I mean, if I want to advertise um, the on, you know, the filthiest content in the world, don't I have that, you know, prerogative? I almost used the word right. But shouldn't I get to make that decision? instead of throwing in with YouTube and them deciding what I want to advertise. So uh, while I don't think it's, um, you know, a First Amendment or any of that garbage, I do think it's bad business. Yeah, I you know, it, it's, it's not a matter of rights. I totally agree with you on that. Uh, my thing is you can't penalize someone for breaking a rule you only vaguely hints at exists. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, if you're watching a football game and the ref just blows the whistle but doesn't tell you why, you don't know it. It's like when I was learning to watch hockey and I didn't understand all the rules, they would all go down to the other end and they would blow the whistle and they would say it was icing. Well, I never knew what icing was. It took me like two years to figure out, oh, that's what icing. Because I'm like, you blew the whistle there. Why didn't you blow it there? It looks like the exact same thing to me. So that's what will happen to these people. They'll use, you know, somebody will use crap and the next person will use bleep. Um, and so it got it got all of a sudden they didn't get any ad revenue for that whole episode because one word flew. And you know, and if it's a 10 minute comedy sketch, are you going to redo the 10 minute thing? Because somebody said, you know, bleep instead of crap. Well, if you want any money, you have to. And, but again, was it bleep or was it the fact that there were two bleeps within 30 seconds of each other that did it? There's, there's no hard and fast. It's just Google being stupid because they're Google and they can get away with it. Google's become the new Apple. Stop saying hard and fast. You're going to get us blocked. <laughs> you know, I think Google didn't handle this very well. And the the problem I... This is just my personal opinion. I think that Google do not want to address the R word, which would be the ratings word. They don't want to be able to say content should be rated by some arbitrary rater. And then as a result, if you're rated PG or you're rated R or whatever it might be, 
that you can you can or you cannot use cuss words. And then they go to the advertiser and go, well, do you want your advert, advert for uh, mattress protectors on an R-rated YouTube show? And maybe they say yes, maybe they say no. Who, who knows? But no one's being given the choice. The problem is that when you have a central authority who's going to go in there and be the designator of rating, then it feels kind of a bit Stalin-like. And that's what they don't want to do. You they went straight be- to Stalin. Wow. Well, that's- yeah, I know. I'm going all the way on this one. No, but you know they don't want to do that. They're they're Google. They're, they're they want to be completely free and you know the whole bit. I, I get that too. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either they're going to rate it and and meet the obligation or the expectation of their hosts who are producing all the content for YouTube, because ultimately that's why we watch YouTube, right? It's because of what they produce. They're going to be fair to them, and then they're fair to everybody else. But I don't know. They don't want to take that position. Yeah, I certainly don't watch YouTube because it's a Google property. I watch YouTube because the stuff I want to see is there. And if people quit uploading stuff there because they're worried they might get their ads blocked, then somebody's going to resurrect Z thing, and I'll go back to there. So... And also more television sets these days are now getting either smart TVs have Google players in them or you're attaching a yeah. NVIDIA Shield or a PlayStation or something like that with a YouTube app on it or Roku. And all of a sudden you're watching YouTube like you would watch regular network television. And now they're facing the issue of the same issue that network televisions had to be dealing with for decades. And that is ratings and where we put well, things and time of day and all of that stuff. What's interesting about this, though, is that at no point is there any talk of, of blocking this. It's just you can't make money off of it. So it's, it's Google saying, if you want to make money, clean up your act. If you want to have a dirty act, go right ahead. So it's, you know, yes, there are a handful of people, and I do mean a handful of people, who make a lot of money on YouTube. Um, you have to have millions and millions of people watching your stuff to make any kind of money at all. Um, and those people um, are being, uh, you know, the rules are changing on them. And, and I understand why they don't like that. But it's, you know, nobody's taking anything down. Nothing's being refused. Um, your content is still there and people can still watch it. You just can't make money off of it. So it becomes like, uh, you know, the, the example I've used before, the, uh, the, the starving artist who wants to go to the NEA uh, to get money for this art because nobody will buy it. Well, if nobody wants to buy your art, you have a choice. You either are an artist for the sake of art, or you're an artist for, for a living, and you go paint decals on McDonald's uh, walls. You, you can still be an artist and make money, or you can starve and do the art you want to do. So, you know, YouTube people are being put in that same position right now. Um, you can either make money, or you can do what you want to do. But you can't do both. You can't say that the world has to pay me to do what I want to do. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, but then they produced their shows in a time when Google wasn't enforcing this, and so it's out there, and they make their money over time as people view. So they've invested all this time, and Google says, oh, we're not paying you for all that. We're, we're, we're. It's not that they're not paying them. They're taking away their ability to make money off of stuff that was already produced when the um, filters were less stringently applied. So it's just so. time to change your business model and move to Patreon. 
uh, and stop depending on Google for the pennies, pennies they throw at you. Um, hey, hey, Mark, I got a suggestion for Element Opie. We create a website called BlueTube, and we use it for all of those really cuss-wordy <laughs> videos, and we, we become their, their worst nightmare. Um, I would not want my name associated with that product, but you go right ahead. Let me know how it works out. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it sounds awfully whiny to me, and and I can say that as somebody who's never made a dime off of YouTube. If they were taking, if I looked at it as you're taking food out of my kids' mouths, I would probably be a lot more uh, up in arms about it. But this just smacks to me of the free market. When you build your business on somebody else's platform, you're at the whim of that platform. Suck it up and deal with it or go build your own platform. Yep. So, I mean, you know, what will happen is somebody will go to somewhere else where this code isn't. And, you know, normally when you go to YouTube and watch a video, you don't normally go to watch just one. You pick something else on that list and click on it, and then you click on it. But whenever there's nothing on that list you want to click to, then you go to then you go back to Facebook, uh, you know, where you go to whatever else the next one's going to be. So Google could be hurting their brand long term in an effort to make it more politically correct and safe for the children. I understand it's all about the children, and, you know, I must be a, a communist suicide bomber because I don't love children, and I don't have a problem with the occasional cuss word on YouTube. But, you know, if I'm a fan of, say, the Vlog Brothers, Hank and John Green, um, I'm going to follow them wherever they go because I'm a fan of them. And if they put out a, a YouTube post that says, hey, guys, we're not on YouTube anymore, um, we're over here now, I- I'm going to go there. Uh, and so... These people who are, and I'm not saying that uh, the Vlog Brothers are the people complaining, although they they did uh, they were listed in this article. Um, these people who have have had the the monetization rug pulled out from under them can go somewhere else. The reason they're complaining is that there's not a better there's no better game in town, and they want to they want to to have to you know throw a fit and get back the thing that was taken from them. Um, and again, I'm not picking the the Vlog Brothers out. They're just the people that that I, I use as an example. I don't know that they're whining, but the overall tone of this article from Variety, and you know, Variety is not known as a, a powerhouse of, of reporting, um, is that it's a very whiny tone overall. Wah, you change the rules. Wah, we can't make money. Uh, you know, I'm, again, that's the danger of building your uh, business on somebody else's platform. You made a bad business decision originally, and you're now seeing the how bad that business decision was. I'm sorry. I truly do feel bad that this didn't work out well for you, but it's time to just move on if this is a problem. Yeah, no, I mean, like I say, I, I, think, I think Google is being ridiculously dumb in their handling of this is more my problem than, you know, the fact that, some of the shows, some of the videos I watch on YouTube have a couple of cuss words in them. You know, big deal. Um, it, to me, it's just kind of like, imagine if a network invested, picked up a, a show, uh, said, hey, we're, re- we're renewing this show for the season. And between the time the show wrapped and it started to air, they changed the guidelines of what was permissible on TV. They invested 
in you know the network investing millions of dollars that all of a sudden they can't show it. Well, I mean these people aren't investing millions of dollars, but they're they've invested significant resources of time, money, energy, and all of a sudden the the rules have changed right out from under them. Google could have said on this date, you know, we're going to start or something like that, rather than just saying, oh, by the way, we started last week doing something and you might notice you're not making any money now. Uh, okay. You might want to change it. I'm going to, I'm going to call a little bit of BS on that because I agreed to the, or as a, as a person who put stuff on YouTube, I agreed to those terms and I can't now get mad that they're enforcing the thing that I already agreed to. I, I totally I understand, but they weren't enforcing it before, you know. But I agreed that it was okay that they did. Yeah, like I say, I just think <laughs> Google handled it very dumbly. Okay, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I, uh, we can I can stipulate that Google makes bad business decisions on a regular basis. Um, you know, they uh, this you know the, this technology that we're using for this show google hangouts is going away why i don't know it just is but i'm not whining about it because it's somebody else's platform and i'm going to use it while i can but there was advance notice that this is going away right it's not like we came in today to do a show and it didn't work yeah not like um i can't even remember the the, the google wave not like that just went away right so you know it's just all they had to say was, "Hey, we're going to be enforcing this on starting on this on this date," and you know, then all of a sudden it's like, "Uh oh, crap! They're calling us on it. We've got to straighten up our game." <laughs> versus they change the rules, and then you know, it's like in the NFL, there's holdings committed every play at the start of the season. The refs, you know, the NFL communicates to the league. Okay. This is what we're looking for, for holding. If you're doing this, we're calling you. It's not all of a sudden I've been doing that for 10 years. It's holding now. No, you know, they changed the rules beforehand and gave notice not, and not even that the rule changed, but they're interpreting it differently. So, there was notice beforehand and then it's up to you to clean up your act versus starting whistling everybody. And then they have to figure out, Oh, they changed the rule on us. Not that they changed the rule. They changed their enforcement of the existing rules. Miles, what do you think? Google is Stalin with pretty colors. <laughs> We're back to Stalin again. You're, you're skipping straight over Hitler and going to Stalin. <laughs> Why not? You know. <laughs> so Godwin's law has got nothing on you. Uh, I I didn't expect the topics that we picked tonight to generate such discussion. I like that. That's good. I like when there's a little friction. Um, So I I think we're going to stop there because, gosh, we're we're moving into a pretty long show here, uh, which is certainly not unusual for us. Uh, But uh, before we go, Seth, tell us what happened this week in history. Okay, actually, this ties in with what we were talking about um, today, but. Uh, September the 4th, today, as of the airing of the show, 1927, AI pioneer John McCarthy was born. Um, his many contribu- contributions to the field uh, include Lisp, which is a computer language for programming in um, programming artificial intelligence. And in 1961, he was the first person to suggest publicly the idea of, he used the term utility computing, 
but um, in thinking that specific applications or computing power could be sold through a utility business model like water of electricity. Today, we would call that grid computing, cloud computing, software as a service, application as a service. He first suggested it all the way back in 1961. Uh, So today is the anniversary of his birth. He passed away a few years ago. So happy birthday, John McCarthy's memory. All right. That's a good one. Uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feedback to us if you have something you want to say. Um, if just listening to us to pontificate for an hour and three quarters wasn't enough and you want more, you can go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, answer the world's hardest CAPTCHA, fill out the form that sends an email to get priority in my end basket, and uh, I will read it. If you want your voice to appear right alongside ours, you can dial 559-IMOP, leave a voicemail on our Google Voice line, and uh, we'll play it on the show. Or you can send an email to a geekrant at elementop.com. Although I've had some indications from people that that's not working. If you thought you sent an email there and and you didn't get a response, uh, let me know at mark at elementop.com, and I'll, I'll see what's going on there. Uh, every time I send an email there, I get it, but there may be something going on I don't know about. Anyway, geekrant at elementop.com. Uh, let us know what's up there. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, I, I always appreciate uh, hearing from listeners, and uh, especially uh, when they have, you know, I, I like it. I like it when listeners disagree, honestly. If they can disagree in cogent, intelligent fashion, that's even better. Uh, so uh, I, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Also, if you want to throw money at us, Patreon, by the way, since we're not monetized on YouTube, um, we're not uh, bothered by the fact that Seth kept saying hard and fast, uh, but you can go to patreon.com, uh, element, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash elementop or elementop.com slash patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, uh, and you can become a patron, which means you subscribe uh, to, uh, you agree to pay a certain amount per everything I post. That's the simple way to put it. You can put whatever amount you want on there, and every time I post something, you pay me that amount. So tell me how much you think I'm worth. Um, hopefully, lots and lots, but we'll see. Uh, I will say that uh, the uh, you know the money just doesn't roll in here. We're not getting super rich. I uh, had to renew my bandwidth hosting just this month. Uh, it was a pretty big uh, charge, and honestly, uh, what I've taken in in the last few months didn't cover it what I've taken in throughout the year did. So I'm not losing money on this thing, but uh, you know, hosting is expensive and uh, you know, this stuff does, doesn't happen. So if you want it to keep happening, that sounds very extortionary, doesn't it? If you want it should keep happening, you should pay me some money. I'm just saying, if you like what we do and you want to support it, patreon.com is the best way to do it. I'll leave it at that. So Seth, now what do you have this week to lower my productivity so that you seem like a better hiring option? Okay. Well, after last week's, productivity crushing uh website you have no Uh, idea (laughs) that's a great website man i love it um this one might actually help you a little bit but it could cause problems if you're not careful a good movie to watch.com if you go there um you're presented with looking for a good movie to watch but don't know what to watch you can do random selection best film or all suggestions you can do like netflix amazon hulu you can sort by genre um all best films best films on netflix or netflix so this is just yeah this is just another way to um determine or to paralyze your um, decision making processes a good movie to watch.com 
So I, I clicked on the random button and I got a war, uh, a Danish war drama that focuses on Commander Klaus Peterson as he leads the, a company of soldiers in modern day Afghanistan while his wife at home in Denmark struggles to care for their three children. Uh, so it appears to be subtitled, um, not in English. Um, so just, I don't know that that's something I would be interested in, but that apparently is a good movie to watch. Yeah, I did the same thing. I got The Violin from 2007. And let me tell you what it says about mood. I don't know if it knows something about me or not. Challenging, depressing, and shocking. So <laughs> I probably won't be watching The Violin. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got The Fundamentals of Caring from 2016. So I don't doesn't look like a movie I would be interested in either. Yeah, well, I mean, Netflix tries to tell you stuff you're interested in, um, and if you're like me and you let your kids use your account on their tablets, uh, they send me things like, here's a new TV show we think you'll like, Glittery Pony Puppies. Um, no, my, my Netflix me- recommendations are so hosed right now, <laughs> so this random good movie might be better than YouTube's or Netflix's recommendations. Uh, all right, I think that is the show, people. Uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, Miles, great to have you here, Seth. As always, you are uh, a scholar and a gentleman, and we appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next week, uh, because that ends this episode of The Geek Rant. Mm-hmm.